Welcome to Data Dialogues. Each Data Dialogue is a three-part conversation. The first two segments individually highlight a person working with environmental data that acts as a starting place for our group conversation with both guests. By talking through who's using what kinds of data and how, we're working to personalize the landscape that environmental data is sitting in so that it can be more accessible and useful to everyone. I'm your host, Angela Eaton. Today, we're in conversation with Marcus Hendricks. Marcus D. Hendricks is an assistant professor of urban planning and the director of the Stormwater Infrastructure Resilience and Justice Lab, or SURGE as it's called, at the University of Maryland. Marcus holds a master's in public health and a PhD in urban and regional science, both from Texas A&M University. I'm so thrilled to be talking with you today. Thank you, Angela. Thank you so much. So, Marcus, I wonder if you could tell me about a favorite place of yours outdoors and how you connect that to your work. Sure. Um, I think, you know, a favorite place of mine outdoors recently is probably the National Mall. The National Mall, you know, this huge strip of open and green space between Capitol Hill and the Lincoln Memorial where Dr. King delivered, you know, his famous I Have a Dream speech, right? Um, a space that's in the heart of the city where so much history has taken place um, from the construction of the very Capitol building by enslaved African and Black people to the recent demonstrations um, in light of the Black Lives Matter movement. I, I use this space to, to, to think, to reflect, um, sometimes I'm walking by, sometimes I'm biking, uh, sometimes I, uh, I'm jogging by, but really a, a point of reflection to think about sort of, again, to, to look backwards and forwards in terms of, of where we are as people, as a nation, um, but then to also think about the, the social, ecological context of like, because it's multidimensional, right? It's like, you have this open green space that serves a purpose for social interaction that also serves a purpose for stormwater mitigation and these other ecological services. But it's also this place, again, to demonstrate um, in terms of social movements and the need for progress. Um, and so, yeah, I, I think I, I leverage the space most often for just reflective thought about what we're doing, why we're doing it, and thinking about, again, sort of the, the, the people that have come before me and will come after me in terms of these larger social movements. I appreciate that. Thank you. Sure, thank it gave you. me a lot to think about. Um, <laughs> but it, it helps me think about like how public space then creates public community, like how much we interact with community through public spaces. Sure. So your specialty is, is stormwater and urban planning, but is that what you're thinking about right now? I mean, if I'm honest right now, what's most recent on my mind is really the, the Ahmaud Arbery murder trial, right? And, and thinking about, especially, you know, and, and right now in this moment, thinking about the differences between private and public space and how we reconcile and, you know, uh, what's afforded to communities and, and how Black and Brown and other people of color are perceived in public and private spaces and what that means for uh, justice and how we sort of manage how we're perceived as a threat in these, you know, 
spaces. And I, I think is directly connected to the work that I do as an advocate scholar in terms of, you know, from a planning perspective, through these mechanisms by which we plan for and develop environments, you know, we set the stage essentially for, for a number of outcomes related to human experience in both private and public spaces. Um, and I think we do a disservice to the profession and the practice when we don't consider these larger questions of you know, public safety, opportunity, the distribution or access to, you know, public spaces and public goods that support the, the innate resilience of communities. So how, do, how are you using your platform, the things that you're doing with Surge, Surge Lab, the Stormwater In Infrastructure Resilience and Justice Lab, how are you using that to get at some of the things that you just talked about? If we think about the, the tools that planners have to, again, guide how we develop communities, I think of, you know, these critical infrastructures as these critical systems or props um, that we leverage to access basic services from water to energy um, to just transportation to be able to move throughout these environments. Within my lab, we focus specifically on the system that is stormwater in terms of the inventory condition distribution of stormwater systems that are that are designed and, and installed to, to manage stormwater runoff uh, to prevent flooding in communities. Um, and it's sort of like a first line of defense to, to mitigate disastrous outcomes related to stormwater. And so it's connected to you know, the work that I do, because oftentimes, you know, whether we're talking about stormwater systems, transportation, housing, or any other type of infrastructure, those systems don't look the same across communities. In my lab and within my work, I usually say I, talk, I take a, a social lens to what has largely been studied as a physical problem in terms of thinking about that continuum between social circumstances and these physical human built environments, if we want to understand the condition or quality of infrastructure at a neighborhood level or just the condition of the broader community, we can usually look to the quality or condition of the local housing. And if we want to understand the quality or condition of local housing, we can usually look to who lives there in terms of their social demographics or economic status because you know, there's this continuum between what people look like in terms of their identity, the legacy of the the circumstances that their race and ethnicity has has driven for their community, um, and again, sort of the built and, and environmental spaces that they occupy, and the the distribution of public goods or environmental goods and environmental bads, and so really thinking about it through an environmental justice lens. I'm wondering from the scientist viewpoint, from the yeah. academic viewpoint, how, you know, like obviously you're getting a data set, mm -hmm. but what else are you getting? How are you becoming part of that interaction? A data set is the least of what I'm getting through these interactions. I think the thing that I'm getting most is a relationship, a relationship with communities who are, 
in fact, brilliant in their own right, who understand through lived experience the physical, social, economic, political dynamics of their community and are really informing everything that I do as a scholar and a scientist, making my job that much easier because, again, they know the questions to ask. They know where, you know, the things that need to be explored and examined to get after those questions. They know sort of the feasibility of approaches in terms of of the methods that we might use to to get after. And then even when we do collect data and have some analysis or findings, they know how to meaningfully interpret that, right? Um, And so I I think about it as more so of of a, you know, sometimes from a top-down perspective, we think of it as community capacity building. The work that I do is community capacity exchange because I think that they're giving me just as much, if not more, in exchange that I'm providing to them in terms of technical services, if you will. What other types of knowledge or information are you working with that is coming to you from the community? And how are you incorporating that with, say, the data that you might be collecting? I might have some secondhand data or secondary data, and I might have some models in terms of what we anticipate stormwater flow and distribution to be based off of how the systems were designed and the information that we have from a secondary, you know, geographic information uh, system data set. But then there might be some local dynamics in terms of, well, yeah, a, a drain inlet does exist on the corner of Avenue A and B, but you know, there's there are trucks that come by every Tuesday and Wednesday that dump litter, trash, and debris in that open ditch that reroutes the water to a different area. And so, from my models, based off the knowledge that I have, based off the the ways that the systems were designed, I'm anticipating water to flow in one direction and having to sort of plan for water in that direction when, in fact, it's flowing in another direction because of local dynamics that are taking place that I'm unaware of, right? And so I think from a high-level perspective of just the things that need to be considered and working in their community to the very real built physical, you know, engineering considerations that need to be made as a result. Have you um, have you ever had the chance to use community-driven projects like community science or community data sets that have already been in existence before you came on the scene and these are local people collecting information about a situation? Sure, sure. I mean, I think, you know, in from my perspective in doing good and ethical community engagement work is one, going into the situation, understanding that your interests might not perfectly align with the things that are, you know, most important to the community, right? Um, And so there may be some misalignment or you might have to incorporate some additional things into your research program in order to, uh, you know, support the community in the ways in which they want to be supported. And so, you know, one of the early projects that I engaged community around, again, I was interested in stormwater, but they were facing a number of other competing environmental challenges um, from, you know, food and agriculture um, to just the, the the distribution of like 
open spaces and, you know, parks and recreational opportunities. And so, and also thinking about if we were to address these issues of providing more access to green space and recreation and agricultural community gardening uh, opportunities, what does this mean in terms of the threat of gentrification? Something that I wasn't necessarily focused on, but I had to have some foresight and start thinking about those things in terms of what needs to go in place ahead of us intervening along the lines of, you know, community gardens, green space, stormwater mitigation in order to prevent the displacement of these people, right? That's very difficult. When you talk about improving environment that has been, for whatever reason, has had really bad outcomes for the community or improving green spaces or creating more public benefit, then all of a sudden that community, instead of getting some relief, is under another burden, which is uh, possibly not being able to live there anymore, like an economic burden, right? So then do you find that that communities actually are like, please don't mess with us? Yeah, no, I mean, I I haven't gotten the response of please don't mess with us, but please consider these additional burdens or potential threats to, you know, our livability and, you know, the the location of our communities. These communities, unfortunately, are, you know, dealing with the number of competing issues from legacies of being underserved or unserved altogether. Um, And any, you know, when you're starting from the bottom any improvement upon that is going to spur the threat of some level of gentrification, right? Um, any improvement to the, the environment. As we work in communities, as I work in communities, I have to be thinking about that, like what protections can go in place from a, a social planning policy perspective to make sure that these folks aren't displaced. Are you interacting mostly with cities or with the federal government or who, when you're talking about policy change uh, or kind of being active in development of policy, where is that happening for you? For me, it's happening at, (laughs) from the, from the lay community all the way up to federal government. And so on any given day, you know, I could spend the first half of my day, you know, on Capitol Hill providing, you know, some, some information to, you know, uh, Congress about, you know, a range of issues to then spending my evening at a small community meeting talking about some of the issues that, that, that are of concern to them. You know, that's the interesting thing about being a scholar in the space that I am in general, but then also being a planning scholar, because fundamentally we're supposed to be liaisons and brokering these relationships between community um, the lay community and, you know, the uh, local government, state or federal government. And so every chance I get sort of I'm, I'm brokering those relationships and making sure that I'm creating a space where we bring these different parties together to have very rich conversation. At this point in my career, I'm influencing policy from the local level up. But I think primarily my work is taking place at that local level between local residents and community folks and their local municipal government. Oh, that sounds uh, really powerful for everybody involved. So we've heard a little bit about how you are creating data. 
we've heard about how you're interacting with local knowledge and information and including that in what you are doing and how you're like relating that and being a kind of a conduit between uh, local government or even federal government all the way up through. Is there any data that you just wish you had access to and don't? Oh, yes, absolutely. I think when it comes to the data that's been available to scientists over the years and understanding, you know, the state of communities in terms of the quality of infrastructure or even just what they have currently installed has is scant because most often we don't have access to that data, you know, especially when it comes to, to underground pipeline network data between water, stormwater, wastewater infrastructure systems. A lot of local governments and municipalities don't provide access to folks because they make the claim that it's a national security issue. And so they don't provide the data, um, which is unfortunate because how do we effectively plan for investing this huge, you know, uh, it is $1.2 trillion into the nation's infrastructure when, in fact, everybody across that spectrum of people that have a stake in it don't understand, you know, what currently exists to make informed decisions about investment, right? And so for me, as an infrastructure scholar, my ideal data set looks like across a number of systems having this a geospatial data set that includes sort of points and polylines for these network systems, but then in the attribute table, having a sense of the original construction date, um, the current condition, the, the activities in terms of maintenance and rehabilitation and materials, right? The, the dimensions of the systems in terms of the size of the pipes, the material that the pipes are, uh, you know, that were used to develop. Everything that we can know about both the physical system, the location of it, the, the capacity of the system it is sort of my ideal data set to then say, okay, now what do these systems look like across communities, right? Connecting that to historical and potential future risk as it relates to infrastructure, to then put it in a climate context to say, what we need to do both below ground and above ground to mitigate, you know, damage to the infrastructure itself, as well as the communities that, that live there. I mean, I suspect that, you know, I guess the, the local public works departments are taking these things into consideration. But what's the point in having, you know, scientists at land grant institutions to support the states and these local municipalities around this work when you don't provide access of the data to these groups um, to be able to, to, again, make the most of all of these different stakeholders in this space of data, infrastructure, resilience, climate change. Do you find, um, are there any communities that are reverse engineering this for, for themselves, like trying to figure this out for themselves in any way by be doing either like water testing or um, any kind of thing that, that would get at something important to them? Sure, sure, absolutely. And I think some of the things that, you know, you just alluded to in terms of doing monitoring of the water that's coming out that we do have public access to or that lie in the public right away or that are on the surface level that we can engage with. I think, you know, 
the participatory assessment technique for infrastructure that I developed with some of my colleagues, again, feel, has the potential to fill that data gap in terms of folks going out to do visual inspection of the above ground infrastructure assets that exist. Um, and using the same visual technique that trained engineers use to inspect those infrastructure systems to be able to have the data for themselves and fill those data gaps. And we've already, you know, tested uh, that the community science and derived data is just as valid and reliable um, relative to trained engineers and LIDAR technology. And we were able to empirically demonstrate that there wasn't a statistically significant difference in the quality of the data across these three groups. And so that is just one way that we're sort of getting around sort of the, the red tape and the bureaucracy of gaining access by creating the data ourselves. So your dialogue partner is also really interested in infrastructure. She's, she's actually working quite a bit with transportation infrastructure and using public data to um, address public grievances. Uh, specifically looking at traffic issues. So I'd like to introduce you to Shelby Green, your dialogue partner. Shelby is the founder of Open Tallahassee, a community organization using local government data in combination with community submissions and traffic accidents to heal, share information, and importantly, to create a vision zero future for her city through public participation and policy change. So I'm wondering if you have a sparking thought for Shelby. Sure. Yeah. I mean, very, very fascinating work that Shelby is doing. You know, one of my immediate thoughts is that, you know, the nature of transportation systems are above ground for the most part. And so, you know, leveraging public data, satellite imagery and other types of other data is sort of, you know, ripe for transportation systems. But it's kind of like, how do we do that same type of work for infrastructure systems that are below ground, that are more latent or invisible, that we don't have access to? Um, and, and can we leverage that same approach towards these other systems, um, uh, you know, that, that make up our built environments? That sounds like making the invisible visible. Visible, absolutely. I'm excited to uh, see what you and Shelby find out from each other, what, what you two get up to. And I, last question for you, uh, how can we find out about some of the projects that you were talking about online or where are you online? Um, you can find more about my research lab and the projects that I mentioned um, at um, arch.umd.edu slash surge, S-I-R-J. Um, and you can find me uh, personally on Twitter um, at MDH Du Bois, M as in Marcus, D as in Dog, H as in Harry, and Du Bois, D U B O I S. We'll look for you there. All right, thank you so much for your time today. That was really fun. Right. Yeah, thanks a lot, Angela. Really appreciate it. This segment is the second in a three part conversation series. To listen to Shelby Green individual conversation with me or a group dialogue with Shelby and Marcus, please visit us where you listen to your podcasts or at openenvironmentaldata.org.
To read a transcript of this episode and to access resources mentioned throughout the show, please take a look at our show notes, which you can find in the caption for this episode or at openenvironmentaldata.org. This podcast was created by Emma Grimm, Angela Eaton, Michelle Cherupka, Shannon Dosmegan, Amelia Williams, and Katie Hoberling. With music by The Westerlies. Data Dialogues is supported by the Open Environmental Data Project, which is funded by the Shuttleworth Foundation.